I am Casey Hunt, and this is CNN Tonight. The Supreme Court has once again ruled against Donald Trump, clearing the way for a House panel to finally get a hold of his tax returns after years of battling for them. We're going to dig into what that could mean for the former president tonight. Democrats will have just six weeks left to dig into any documents they receive before Republicans take control of the House. But the specter of Trump is still going to hang over the GOP. There's his presidential campaign, the investigations into his conduct, and the behavior of his allies on Capitol Hill. GOP leader Kevin McCarthy is acting like the speaker in waiting. But now there is another hard no declaration against him. Congressman Ralph Norman of South Carolina is the latest Republican who is threatening to vote against McCarthy for speaker on the House floor in January. That brings the number of possible no votes up to five. He joins Matt Gates, Matt Rosendale, Andy Biggs, and Bob Good, who've all signaled they'll oppose McCarthy. If current margins hold in the House races that are not yet called, McCarthy will only be able to afford to lose four votes. This presents quite a math problem and could lead to some serious drama on the House floor on January 3rd. McCarthy was at the Mexican border today to make more promises and acting like he's a sure thing. In 42 days, a united Republican House takes control. We will use the power of the purse and the power of the subpoena. If Secretary Mayorkas does not resign, House Republicans will investigate every order, every action, and every failure. We will do whatever it takes. Becoming Speaker traditionally takes 218 votes. Technically, though, what you need is a majority of the lawmakers who are present on the House floor. If no candidate has a majority on the initial vote, the House goes to a second ballot, and so on and so on. The last time a Speaker election went to multiple ballots was way back in 1923. Nancy Pelosi won re-election last year as Speaker with 216 votes. It took John Boehner back in 2015, 216 votes. That was also what Newt Gingrich received in 1997. McCarthy's road, though, potentially quite a bit rockier. He's been preparing for this moment for years, carefully courting the Freedom Caucus group that made Boehner's life so difficult that Boehner up and resigned. And in recent weeks, McCarthy has courted conspiracy theorists like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Remember what Greene told the New York Times last month about McCarthy. Quote, I think that to be the best Speaker of the House and to please the base, he's going to give me a lot of power and a lot of leeway. And if he doesn't, they're going to be very unhappy about it. Greene added, that wasn't a threat. But the reality that she and others like her are emboldened by the leverage that the narrow margin gives them over McCarthy. But... But, 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 you cannot beat someone with no one. And right now, there doesn't seem to be an obvious alternative to McCarthy. Or is there? Let's put that to our first guest, Congressman David Joyce of Ohio, chair of the Republican Governance Committee. He just won re-election to a sixth House term. Uh, Congressman, congratulations on your recent win. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Casey. So let's start off. Does McCarthy, does Kevin McCarthy have the votes to become speaker in January? Kevin certainly deserves the opportunity to be the next speaker. And he was just recently elected, as well as all of our leadership was, by wide margins of folks throughout the conference. Um, right now, there's a few people holding out, and they think that some power in, in holding out or saying that they're going to hold out. But Kevin deserves the opportunity to lead. He has done a great job of bringing us together, of having a uniform 
uh, message in which we could all run, of wanting to bring back the economy, to bring back accountability to our government, to make our community safe and secure, and to take care of the fentanyl and those problems at the border. Sure. And he's down there discussing that today. So if not McCarthy, like these people on the far right of your conference are saying, then who? Well, you know, they don't have a candidate and they're just making noise. And I can appreciate that because in a majority, a slim majority like we've got now, let's face it, everybody can do the same thing. Uh, but, you know, what are they trying to hold out for? Ralph Norman, I heard him the other day ask Kevin about, well, would you support the RSC budget? Well, RSC is a small makeup of the whole conference. Why would Kevin ever commit to something like that? And Kevin's not going to commit this to the HFC because he's also got Republican governance group. He's got the problem solvers. He's yeah. got uh, Main Street. He's got the Republican study commission. He's got what do you want from Hispanic him? Th- what do you as the, the, the Republican governance conference, what do you want from him? Well, a good governance. That's what we wanted. That's what we were elected for. We didn't come here to make uh, a point. We came here to make a difference. We were duly elected by the people in our communities to go back there and fix the problems that exist. They're sick sick of the dysfunction that has continued on time and time again. Each year we've been for the sixth, uh, well now be my sixth term coming back, of not getting things done. We have to go back and fix the problems that are directly affecting the American people on a daily basis. Yeah, so speaking of that, you know, I'm glad you raised it because I can actually fill up the screen with the investigations that members of your party have announced. And I, I think we have a graphic that we can show everyone. I mean, these are all the topics that some of your colleagues have come out and said, hey, we want to look into this. We, we want this to be our focus. There has not been uh, a or at least we have not seen as yet a concerted effort around an agenda for House Republicans. And the reality is government is divided. I mean, how do you expect to accomplish any of those things? I mean, what are you going to be able to run on in two years in your own election when you've got other members of your party focused on what we were just showing everyone? And and that's a great point, Casey. But the thing is that, you know, we have to have a government that's transparent and we have to have a government that's accountable. And some of these things deserve the uh, oversight committee. It's our duty to to, uh, perform the oversight on these things. But with the overwhelming majority of Americans, and look at the places these votes came from, New York, Florida, California, not necessarily areas that are considered widely red or widely blue, but areas where the people want to get things done. They're being affected directly, and every time they go to the pump, they put their trust in us, and they deserve to have their trust honored by making sure we deliver for them and laying out an agenda that fixes the problems that are there, or we won't hold this majority. Do you think... Any of those investigations we just showed are a waste of time. Let's start with the Hunter Biden investigation. Is that a worthwhile use of Republicans' time and energy when you take back the House? Again, there should be certain things to be looked at. I don't, I have not looked at Hunter Biden's laptop because, you know, I was a prosecutor for 25 years before I got here. It certainly would sound like there's some merit to looking into it. But I do think that we should spend, and there's committees of oversight and judiciary that should take some time looking at those things. And looking at whether or not there's an issue at the border and who's doing what. But the, the, the fact of the economy is we have to rein in the spending, the government spending, claw back the money that's out there and put it towards more beneficial uses that drive down the cost of living for Americans, that take care of making us energy independent again, bringing down the cost of gas at the pump and doing the things that are necessary to make our community safe and whole. And if we don't provide that, we won't hold this majority. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's certainly I think we've seen uh, examples of what you're talking about in the past. I, I, th- I guess my question is, how do you implement what you are talking about? How do you push your party 
to do those things when the Freedom Caucus or, I mean, I'm not even sure that's the right name anymore, the people with the biggest megaphones on the right, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, seem to be able to exert the most control over the direction of the conference as a whole by, honestly, you could argue they're holding it hostage. Well, you could argue that, but I think we have to get, and, and I've told this to Kevin on many occasions, and I brought it up in front of our conference last week. You know, they can talk about all these things and they want to do a budget and they want to create the appropriations bills. We'll deliver appropriations bills. That's not a problem. Will we have the 218 votes to take them forward? And so it's time we start looking at what we can do and whether people are willing to do those things that are necessary to actually be effective and govern. And that's something that we've heard a lot of noise about. But if we let committees actually do their work, let the chairman and committees and, and Democrats and Republicans have their amendments, let those come from committees to floor and then yeah. again, have amendments that are germane to the bill and pass things. All due respect, sir, I, I have heard, I, I hear that argument. We have heard that argument quite a bit. It is just simply not how Congress has been operating lately. Um, I, perhaps we'll see a change, Absolutely. but <laughs> let me, let me close. Dysfunction. There's no doubt about it. Casey, you've covered us. You know there's dysfunction. We have to try to cure it. So speaking of this, I just want to ask you one quick question before I let you go. Um, and this is about Marjorie Taylor Greene, because... Uh, just over a year ago, seven of your members of the council, the Republican governance group that you're part of, um, voted to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments. Now it seems like she's going to get them back. Um, how do you feel about her saying that, that there's a lot of power and a lot of leeway? And how do you feel about your leadership threatening to strip Democrats off the committee for far less than calling for essentially violence against their colleagues? I spoke up at the conference when they wanted to strip Liz, initially, when they wanted to strip Liz Cheney uh, from the conference chair for some of her comments. And then they also wanted to take the committees away. And I look, I didn't know Mrs. Green at that time from anyone else in the community. But I did say that, you know, where are the standards that we hold these people accountable? I didn't see any list of standards when I came here saying that if you say these things or you do these things, then we're going to strip you of all of your uh, rights and, and the duties of your office. The people in your district elected you. And if they think you're uh, not doing the job, then they can take it away from you every two years. That's so exactly think why that I think Kevin deserves a job for two years. If you don't like should should McCarthy years. then not move to strip these Democrats of their committee assignments? Swalwell, Schiff, and Ilhan Omar? Well, yeah, and Kevin, as a leader, can take those positions. And I think he's got some avid, uh, or some details on why they, they make a good case on why perhaps uh, Swalwell and Schiff deserve to come off. But uh, I'm not party to that discussion. So... Uh, I can tell you that as far as I'm concerned, that we should give everybody an opportunity until they prove otherwise. All right. Congressman David Joyce, thank you very much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for having me, Casey. All right. We've got much more ahead on the Supreme Court's new ruling to allow Congress to see Donald Trump's tax returns. Will Democrats on the Ways and Means Committee get a hold of them before Republicans take hold of the House? That's next. You just heard from one Republican congressman who says he's supporting Kevin McCarthy for House Speaker, but the Republican leader still has a fight on his hands. There are currently five members of his party who say that they will oppose him at this juncture anyway. That, of course, if they're willing to stick to their guns, could make or break his chances of getting his dream job. Can he win them over, or shall we say, can he put so much pressure 
on the system that everybody caves and gives him what he wants. Let's bring in CNN political commentator and Democratic strategist Paul Begala, CNN political analyst and Axios managing editor for politics, Margaret Taleb, and former RNC communications director, Doug High. Uh, thank you guys all for being here. Um, we were watching that that interview uh, with Congressman Joyce with, with some interest. And, you know, Doug, I have to say it, it sort of give, gave me some flashbacks to you worked for Eric Cantor, mm-hmm. who, of course, yeah. was one of the first kind of signs that this is the way his loss, which obviously took so many of us by surprise. And I know you don't like to be reminded, so I'm sorry. (laughs) I apologize. But it really was in some ways the canary in the coal mine Mm -hmm. for kind of the situation that we now find ourselves in. So I'm just kind of curious, like, what did you make of what he had to say and what's next for McCarthy? Well, I think he he highlighted where Republicans want to go, or at least the big, large majority of Republicans want to go. But you can't get there if you can't get to 218. And that's always been the challenge. You and Margaret both you know, would, would you know, chase Eric Cantor and John Boehner and other members down the, the com- <laughs> uh, down the corridors in Congress when we couldn't get to 218. Or you would ask us, are you going to be able to t- get to 218? And we'd be very confident that we would. And then privately, uh, we don't know. <laughs> and so this is the job that, that Kevin has now. And he's dressing for the role by being at the border. He's right. talking the right way about it right now. But he has to get to 218 and go back into his, his role, not as being a leader, but as being a whip. He's got to not just count the votes. He's got to find them and get them. But the conversation that you come back to again and again is what's the alternative? And if you are the right flank of the Republican Party, like, who's the alternative to Kevin McCarthy? Maybe Steve Scalise, but that's basically Kevin McCarthy. Uh, (laughs) Maybe someone in the right flank, but look at David Joyce and the other half a dozen or so, uh, the newly elected incoming Republicans in Biden plus districts. They're not going to embrace someone on the right flank. Someone has to be in charge of the House of Representatives. Are Democrats going to start trying to grab back moderate Republicans and flip them? I mean, someone will have to be the House Speaker. And so the odds are still on McCarthy. And the question is, at what point does he stop being led and just try to assert his leadership? Yeah, well, I mean, I, that's the part, you know, and I, I don't know, Paul, how, how well you've gotten to know McCarthy in your in your years in this town. I mean, we used to have a lot more kind of crossover among the yeah, parties. Not, not as well. As um, like, I knew Gingrich much better, and yeah. he hated me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> McCarthy has never been, I mean, he is, in my experience, somebody who, when you're in a private room with him, will tell you what he thinks you want to hear. He's very good at that. It's mm. part of why he's very good at raising money, but he, it, it's... He's not necessarily someone who sticks where you expect him, where he says he'll stick. I mean, look what happened after January 6th. Right. He's the reason he's on the border, I think, braying about investigating Alejandro Mayorkas, which I'll pause while everybody says who and reaches for their Google machine. (laughs) They're going to have to focus on investigation for two reasons. (laughs) It's the only thing that unites that fractious caucus conference. And second, you have to do investigation when you can't do legislation. Nancy Pelosi had about a five seat margin. She passed the Recovery Act, a gun control bill, the infrastructure bill, the PACT Act, expanding health care for veterans, the, the, the CHIPS Act, expanding technology. The most consequential set of legislation probably in a quarter century with five-seat margin. Will Kevin be able to pass, Mr. McCarthy, anything? Well, of course not. In fact, here's pro tip. Don't sit with him at Thanksgiving because he won't be able to pass the gravy without Marjorie Taylor Greene coming in and doing it for him. <laughs> Margaret, I mean, what's your assessment? Damn, I got nothing. Come on. That's like a well, drop the mic moment. There's, there's a name that we haven't mentioned in all this, and that's Donald Trump. And obviously, if he decides to weigh in on this, he's going to have enormous influence. And those hard no's may not be hard no's if Donald Trump or Trump world and the, the Trump orbit is going into Kevin's office 
every day. You, I mean, you see Capitol Hill reporters tweeting of who just walked in, who, who just walked out. Right. That can have a real role. Well, and it, it seems like Marjorie Taylor Greene sort of got that message, too, because mm-hmm. she has been saying out there publicly, like, or she was urging people to back McCarthy in the course of the, of the leadership election. Speaking of Trump, um, can we talk about this tax return situation for a second? Margaret, I'm, I'm curious what you think. This has been a years-long fight. Um, the Finally, a court that was stacked by Donald Trump-appointed justices has... Actually, this is, you know, a, a, not the first time that they have rejected one of his appeals in a situation where, you know, he clearly was making a political appeal to them, whether it was around uh, the, the raid down at, at Mar-a-Lago or around this. Do you think this is ultimately going to have an impact? Are we actually going to see the tax returns? I mean, how many times, ta- we've talked so many times about, oh yes, this time we're finally going to get to see Donald Trump's tax returns yeah. and here we are in 2022, we've never seen them. I mean, the, so you're asking all the right questions. Uh, this is the end of the road legally. Uh, the Democrats in Congress are now going to get these tax returns. They've got 41 days to do something with them. They've also had six years to plan for this moment. So like (laughs) tiny violins, they should know what to do with it. The question is, there are two questions. Number one, are they going to be released publicly? And number two, will there be any findings in those um, records that we have never heard of before? So much of this got leaked in bits and pieces. I I don't know what the impact is going to be, but I think as as a matter of course, as a matter of precedent, it is important that these courts are upholding the law, and the law is so clear. This is happening at a time, uh, mind you, when now that the Republicans are about to assume the majority in the House, they're about to get a taste of the medicine the Democrats have have lived with. We uh, have a story out tonight talking with lawyers who represent private sector clients who go before Congress for investigations. Those lawyers telling uh, us, um, get ready. We are he- seeing record numbers of clients who want to fight back at a minimum to negotiate subpoenas and requests yeah. to appear, but at a maximum who we're just going to say no. You should all the Republican potential investigations. The yeah, only yeah. reason we're talking about this issue is because parties don't investigate themselves. We know about these tax returns. We may see them because Democrats in the House majority investigated Donald Trump. This is part of the proper oversight. One other thing on the speaker's vote. There will be drama that morning um, on January, January 2nd or January 3rd. Yeah. When you have that vote and every member stands up one by one, they can vote for Paul Begala if they want to. They can vote for Casey Hunter, Margaret Tower. Would you like to be speaker of the House? Never. They can, vote for, they can vote for Kanye <laughs> if they want to. Lord, don't. But there will be drama, including members who, when their name is called, suddenly aren't seen on the House chamber. It's happened before. It will certainly happen this time. Can I suggest one other piece of drama? Who believes Trump's going to obey the Supreme Court? I don't. He'll just run out the clock, and then we'll start all over again. Well, isn't it up to the Treasury Department? I mean, they have his tax returns. Oh, I suppose so. That's right. I guess he doesn't have them. It's not for him. Yeah. But this is a little counterintuitive to come from a Democrat. The law doesn't say the American people have a right to see them. I wish we had a law that said that. We should. But we don't. And so the Congress has a right to see them. Frankly, I don't. But Congress so I, I don't has think a they right. should release them to the public because they're private documents that the Congress has a right to see, but you and I don't. I, I want a law that requires everybody to release the way Obama and Reagan and Clinton and everybody did, but there's no such law But I law think right Congress now. can, and this ruling says that Congress can, whether they choose or not is a different matter. But part of the reason that there's so much drama about this is because it has long been precedent in the modern presidency right. for right. presidents to show the public Normally we don't have to do around this, this right. issue. Because they well, we should have laws and follow the right What a thing. shocker. Yeah, but there ought to be a binding. Other law for people everybody. do the right there could, thing. There could be. There could be a law. <laughs> there is a lame duck session. Maybe there's not enough time for everything. But this could be actually 
There's not yeah. enough time for everything in the lame duck, nor is there not enough time for more of this in this segment. So you guys stick around because we'll be coming back to you. Coming up ahead, developments on the mass shooting at an all at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. More information is emerging about the suspected shooter as new questions emerge over why previous charges against that person were dropped. Next. New details tonight in the Colorado Springs club shooting massacre. Attorneys for the accused club Q shooter say in a new court filing that the suspect identifies as non-binary and uses they, them pronouns. The public defender's office has declined all requests for comment on their representation of the suspect. That suspect will appear in court for the first time tomorrow after being released from the hospital and into sheriff's custody. This afternoon, mourners gathered around a shrine outside of Club Q to remember the five people who were killed. The El Paso County District Attorney told CNN tonight that hate crime charges are still being considered in the attack at the LGBTQ club, but he likely won't have a final decision this week. Police still aren't giving any new details about a motive. Joining me now is someone who knows Colorado Springs well, city council member and longtime resident Nancy Hengem. Nancy, thank you so much for being with us tonight. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I just wanted to start, at Councilwoman, by saying that, you know, we are so sorry about this tragedy that has befallen uh, your community. How is the community holding up? I mean, what have you heard uh, from your neighbors and friends? Well, it's everything you can imagine. Um, fear and uh, uh, concern and anger and uh, worry, um, as well as Really, honestly, I think what I want you to know is the tremendous outpouring of love and and support and action. Um, There's been tremendous action from our business leaders, from the police and fire, from the mayor, uh, nonprofits, faith leaders. Um, There has just been a tremendous outpouring of support. And it's so much greater than the act of violence that was committed, this heinous act of violence that was committed by this one person. So the police are, of course, looking into what motivated this attack, although it sounds like it's going to be some time before we learn whether they will charge this as a hate crime. What do you think motivated it? I have no way of knowing. I just know that it caused tremendous loss and continued fear among people who are LGBTQ in our community and and really, quite frankly, anywhere people go in the country. Um, so it's created fear, and uh, I have I have no way of knowing what this person's motivations were. I want them to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, however. Of course. So Colorado Springs is a mostly conservative city, or largely conservative city, uh, with a history in some corners of LGBTQ, anti-LGBTQ activism. It's home Uh, for example, to the Family Research Institute uh, that has been uh, designated an anti-LGBTQ hate group. What What are you and other leaders doing to try and reassure members of the Colorado Springs community that they're safe there? Well, we're taking action. Um, We are uh, showing our support, um, not just through... um, you know, making comments of love and support and prayers, but we're, we're taking action. So for example, um, we uh, received, we were, there was an outreach to us by the head of the C2C um, flag 
project, the Sacred Flag, Flag Project. And they offered in solidarity and support to our community um, this very precious flag that has flown at um, uh, the the uh, Pulse nightclub. It's flown at the um, White House. It's flown at the Supreme Court. And this very precious flag has been offered to our city. And I'm really um, very proud to say that tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock on our city hall, we will be raising that flag on our building and we will be demonstrating. We will have police uh, representation, fire representation. The mayor will be present, city elected officials, um, the LGBTQ community um, and, and its allies and people will be speaking and we will be showing our commitment and our support. And what I can tell you that I heard this morning at city hall and city council meeting is people will not be moved that we, nobody is going back in any closets and we are moving forward and we will continue to be a love, a city of, of love. And the, the history that you mentioned is getting smaller and smaller and, and in our rear view mirror and we are moving forward. All right. We certainly will be watching that tomorrow. Um, let me ask you about the, the gun piece of this uh, this question. The suspect was arrested back in June of 2021 for threatening to cause harm with a homemade bomb, multiple weapons and ammunition. But ultimately, the charges were dropped and this person was able to buy a gun. Do the red flag laws in Colorado go far enough? Are they effective if people like this could can slip through the cracks? And should law enforcement officials who were dealing with this the first time, they could have taken further steps, uh, including, you know, the El Paso County Sheriff uh, could have taken more steps once the family decided to drop charges here. I mean, should that have happened? Look, if if the red flag laws um, were to work as they're supposed to, they they clearly haven't. And so we need to uh, do more with that. And I understand that Governor Polis is looking into that. So if they if they were supposed to work the way they were supposed to, it it didn't happen. But um, Governor Polis, I'm sure, will be working on that, and more needs to be done there. All right, Council Member Nancy Hengem, thank you very much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Casey. I appreciate you uh, giving time to Colorado Springs. Of course. And another blow to the American economy could be just weeks away. The threat of a freight rail strike is back, and with it, the possibility of new price hikes and more supply shortages. A key player in this drama joins us with where things stand after a critical meeting today and why the issue isn't actually about paychecks. That's next. An economically crippling rail strike could hit the U.S. just two weeks from now, of course, right in the middle at the height of the holiday season. Leaders of four railroad unions and the major freight lines sat down for a new round of negotiations today. And there's been a lot of scary talk about what will happen if we see the first major rail strike in this country in 30 years. Some estimates say it could mean a $2 billion per day hit to the economy. But what would it mean to most of us? Even higher prices on groceries at a time when food prices are already up almost 11% over the last year. And holiday travel likely to become a mess given that nearly all of Amtrak's long distance trains use freight tracks. And all those presents that you're ordering online or trying to find in stores, probably delayed since no option exists that can handle the 30% of goods that are shipped on trains nationwide. Legally, President Biden is out of options to force a deal, but Congress could force the trains to keep moving 
even if the terms are worse than what the unions have turned down already. Jeremy Ferguson is the president of one of the four key unions who is involved in the talks. Uh, sir, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Good evening, uh, Casey. Thank you for having me. So yesterday, your 20,000 workers rejected this deal that had been announced earlier in the year. How did today's talks go? Well, I think we were off to a, a decent start. We had a lot of issues we had to put on the table to uh, begin the discussions. Uh, so we will follow up again tomorrow and see where that leads us. So how likely do you think it is that your members are going to strike, even if it's only for a short time? Well, I think it's about a 50-50 a right now. Um, we're going to continue uh, working as hard as we can to get them the right agreement that would ratify. Uh, they have a lot of issues. Uh, they have spoken, and uh, I've got to do my due diligence and get in there and uh, keep these negotiations moving. So that tentative deal was brokered back in September, and the sticking points of sick time and quality of life were key issues back then, but seem to have been resolved once the Biden administration got involved. I mean, what changed between then and now? Well, we made a lot of uh, inroads uh, on those attendance policy issues. Uh, that was a big hang up. And uh, then we have uh, basically a two-step process in this tentative agreement, uh, meaning there's a second round of negotiations that would take place on the property of each individual railroad to get into effect the rest days to give those people the uh, adequate time off that they need. Now, there's a number of other issues, but talking to the membership, uh, this wasn't necessarily just a referendum vote on the agreement, but it was also a referendum vote uh, against their employers. Uh, it's been a long haul. It's been three and a half years without a wage increase, working through the pandemic, uh, being you know essential employees, keeping America moving. And uh, they are they are just tired. They're, they're overworked. Uh, the, the railroads have cut to the bone and they wanted to just have their voice heard that uh, they're fed up. So and that's where we're at right now. I mean, look, I'm glad you underscored that they were essential workers through the pandemic because all of us that, you know, continued to buy groceries through a very difficult time uh, owe them as much as we do the grocery workers that we actually saw every day uh, for that ability. So, you know, our, our, our thanks do uh, go out to them. Um, in terms of expressing that anger, I mean, it sounds to me, do you think that they feel like they have to go as far as actually striking to demonstrate the level of the anger that they have? Well, I, I would, uh, you know, I feel their pain. And yes, uh, they do feel that they have to go that far. It's nothing against the American people or the economy, the supply chain or anything like that. It is it is just mainly uh, voicing uh, their frustrations with their their employers. OK, um, you've you've said that you do expect Congress to intervene, though. I mean, how worried are you? that the deal that Congress may insist on will actually end up being worse uh, for these workers than what was agreed to in September? Well, that is always a, a big fear of ours, that we could wind up in a worse position. Um, but, um, you know, Congress has uh, consistently intervened in the past. It's been a long time for, for our union at the national freight level. Um, but historically, uh, they have to, to keep the uh, commerce moving. But uh, we will see where this takes us, and uh, we will do our best to make sure if Congress is going to intervene that uh, they give us the best deal possible and, and uh, not harm the employees. Um, in terms of timing, I mean, how concerned are you with 
I mean, it sounds like this would happen imminently, uh, so Democrats would still be in control of the House. Is there any world where you're concerned that, you know, it turns over to Republicans and, quite frankly, you get a worse deal? We've played out every scenario, and, and every one of those gives us great concern. So, <laughs> yes, uh, I would like to get a deal done here before we get to the end of the cooling off period so we don't have to worry about it, but uh, it's going to be a tough haul. So uh, we're just going to have to, you know, stay at it and, and do our best here. Yeah. Uh, you said on CNN this morning, just one final question for you, that there have been, quote, limited, very limited discussions with the Biden administration. But the White House is out there saying that the president is, quote, directly involved in negotiations. I mean, have you heard from the president himself? I have not heard from the president uh, himself. Uh, I've been in this a very short duration, obviously, just about 36 hours. Um, and when we went back to the table this afternoon, but I am sure he is working on things behind the scenes, um, uh, you know, possibly talking to the railroads, the negotiators for the railroads. They have not voiced that to me, but I'm sure this is going to pick up a lot of speed here in the next few days. Uh, so I'm sure we'll be uh, we'll all be uh, conversing on this. Well, it sounds like you've got a pretty stressful Thanksgiving holiday ahead of you, so we will let you go um, with our thanks, Jeremy Ferguson, for being with us tonight. Well, thank you, Casey, and have a good evening. Thank you. You as well. Question for all of you out there. Who is the most dangerous person in the world? Whatever your answer, I want you to see which name comes to mind for a prominent Republican who might run for president. The answer could leave you wondering if there's really no limit to the culture wars when CNN Tonight returns. So, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was asked, who's the most dangerous person in the world? Remember, used to be Secretary of State, head of the CIA. Who do you think he named? Let's take a guess. Was it North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, who once threatened to attack Guam and, you know, tests missiles a lot? Or was it China's communist leader Xi Jinping, whose country is accused of cyber attacks on the United States? What about Russia's Vladimir Putin, who recently invaded Ukraine? Or Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran? Give up? Well, here's his actual answer. The most dangerous person in the world, according to Mike Pompeo, is Randy Weingarten. It's not a close call, he says. It would be the teachers' unions and the filth that they're teaching our kids. Okay, Randy Weingarten. She is, of course, the president of the American Federation of Teachers. Weingarten fired back with this tweet. Quote, I know that Mike Pompeo is running for president, and frankly, I don't know whether to characterize his characterization of me as ridiculous or dangerous. Let's discuss. Back with me now, Paul Begala, Margaret Talib, and Doug. Hi, um, Doug. Uh, you're a Republican. Mm -hmm. This does seem like, I, I, look, I get it. He is, this is an issue with the Republican base. The Randy Weingarten has become a villain over COVID and many other things in our kids' schools. But it does seem a bit of a bridge for somebody who, like, actually knows things about Kim Jong-un and the things he's trying to do to the United States that, like, none of us, if, if we all knew at this table, we'd probably be, like, awake all night. So let me tell you how uh, Republican Communications 101 goes now. It's not how right. it used to be. <laughs> is you find an easy target. Randy Weingarten is a very easy topic for a lot of the reasons you mentioned, although I would say, in fairness to her, nobody did more to elect Glenn Youngkin in Virginia <laughs> than Randy Weingarten, so we'll have that political point. But you find an easy target. You make an intentionally over-the-top attack, and then you sit back and just watch the left 
spin itself up and spin itself up. And that is exactly what Pompeo did, and he knew it was do what he was doing. And you know, so many of these candidates who might run or might not run, if, depending on how Trump does in the polls, they're trying to emulate Donald Trump. Donald Trump created the right enemies better than anybody we've seen in American politics in a generation, if not longer. And that's, that's what so Mike Pompeo did. And if it works, is it really cynical? Well, yes. And what else <laughs> it is, is stupid. Mike Pompeo was first in his class at West Point, one of the great universities of the world. BS in mechanical engineering, Bachelor of Science. He's a brilliant man. Why would he say something so stupid? It's, yeah, I guess he wants to own the libs. I don't think that's it. I know every time he says that, he's telling his voters, Republican primary voters, that he thinks they're dumb, that they'll fall for this nonsense because they're stupid. I don't think they are, but Mike Pompeo, genius, believes his voters are so stupid I mean, well, that they think this nice lady who if, spent her career trying to teach kids the nice lady is somehow more said, dangerous than the first in line for every vaccination oh, possible, but you can't open up the schools please. even though they've oh, acceded to every demand. Again, He's there's a just, reason Glenn Youngkin won, He is betting won, on the Paul. stupidity of Republican primary voters. No single person That's what did he's more presuming. than for he's Glenn Youngkin, except for dumb. Glenn Youngkin, than Randy Weingarten. The whole school revolution Randy Weingarten. Can we just do a reality check just for a second? Please, let's do it. This person, you can be against teachers unions or you can think that they uh, torque too far towards um, thinking about, you know, social issues and not enough towards math and science or whatever it is. This is a 64 year old woman, a Jewish woman from New York. Her father was an engineer. Her mother was a teacher. She was a teacher for a while. She was a lawyer. She became active in labor unions. She believes in the cause. If you met her, you would not think that she was a terrorist or a dictator or had I mean, I think a we have our picture. We can probably on the button. It's just it's it's silly, but it is strategic. And and her own question about whether it was uh, ridiculous. What did she say? Ridiculous or dangerous? Right. The, the problem is that in the moment we're in, it's kind of both because you don't if you are a leader who's trying to motivate your base and your base actually thinks that this is the most dangerous person in the world. Yeah. This could jump from rhetoric. I, I, to, I take the, the point. In the era of the attack against Pelosi, I take the point, I but I think you point. also miss it. It's not about her. It's her as the foil, so they can watch the left no, go crazy. No, I get it. No, I totally get it, and I it's, think that that's and you can true. raise money too. But but it, it, everyone has a responsibility. This right. moment that of we're course, in, we of all course. like whether you are a journalist or a, a pundit or a strategist. We, we January sixth was like a second ago. Right. Like, did we all learn nothing so, from this? So it's a character test so. for, for Mr. Pompeo. He's failed it. It's an IQ test for Republican primary voters. I'm betting that they'll pass well, it. Well, look, Paul, I will, let me just push back on that for a second, because I think one of the main criticisms of the teachers' unions, to go back to, you know, how it, it's viewed in a legitimate, nonviolent, like, over-the-top rhetoric sort of way, is that these people treated them at the time like they were stupid, right? And that the teachers were, the teachers' unions were telling them that they didn't have a right to, you know, ask that their kids be back in school. I mean, there's very real data out there that shows that damage was done, especially to the lowest income, neediest kids who right. weren't allowed to go back to their classrooms. Right. I mean, if, that's the argument. There's, you can have a good argument about teachers' unions. I happen to love them. I love Randy Weingarten. She's a friend of mine. But if you jump to the conclusion that she is the most dangerous person on earth, you're really well, stupid. I, okay. I'm sorry. If you believe that, you're stupid. Mike Pompeo thinks you're stupid, Republican voters. I don't. I'd wager that Mike Pompeo does not actually believe that she's more dangerous than Vladimir Putin. So no, I don't know why she went to Ukraine. So he's a liar? Well, I mean, if we want to go down that road, we can. There's a lot of exaggeration in politics. I've worked for people who've done it. You've worked for people who've done it. Yeah, there have been some pretty crazy statements that have been made. And again, when I said Republican Communications 101, right. I wasn't praising it. I thought, I thought no, we I used know. to do it a little a bit smarter, a little more strategically. I mean, you're essentially saying that this is how we're going to see 
and, and, and you know, we have, I, I, one of the other things that caught our eye today is this ad, you know, Herschel Walker has out there with a transgender swimmer, uh, or excuse me, a, a woman who uh, lost or tied with a uh, transgender woman who was swimming against her with the idea that, you know, drawing the sort of trans argument into this culture war, um, you're saying that like what we're gonna see is sort of a, a bottom line cynical attempt to use these issues to anger liberals in a way that will get Republicans excited about voting for them? Uh, I, in the primaries, yes. This is part of how, how, they make, how they make noise and make news and raise money. And I saw that ad on Saturday. I was watching the North Carolina Georgia Tech football game, so it came on TV. And look, I'd rather that Herschel be talking about um, inflation and the economy and those things that he needs to do to really win in Georgia. I don't think this is the argument that gets him there, but he's running from behind, and so he's trying to use different tactics. Paul? There, there are 580,000 college athletes in America. 50 are trans. It's not a problem. By the way, Georgia's already banned them. But what, what Walker's doing is revealing himself as a bully, the kind of bully who's been accused of holding a gun to his wife's head, been accused of trying to coerce a woman that he got pregnant who was not his wife into having an abortion, accused of abandoning his children. He's a bully. And I don't think Georgians are going to fall for it. I think Reverend Warnock showing a very different kind of leadership, servant leadership out of the pulpit of Ebenezer Baptist Church. My money's on Warnock. Well, it sounds like we are um, all in for a season of <laughs> more nasty attacks. And um, we'll, we'll leave it. You know what? It's, we're heading into Thanksgiving week. I feel like we should just <laughs> leave it there. Pick this up in late November. <laughs> Talk about it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we're not going to Iowa yet, people. Paul Begala and Margaret Talat, Doug Hi, thank you very much for being with us tonight. Thanks so much for watching. I'll be back here tomorrow night. I hope you will be too. Our coverage continues now with Allison Camerata. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.